Hello and welcome back to season three of Sequelizers. This is still the show all about fixing the bad sequels that followed good movies. If there was a good movie that was followed by a terrible sequel, you better believe we're going to try and fix it. This is Real 2 of Ghostbusters 2, and I am still your host, Mr. Jack Chambers. And joining me, I Ain't Afraid of No Tea Vicar, <laughs> a.k.a. <laughs> Alec Flowman. Hello. <laughs> and Stuart Ash. Hello. And their opponents, aka the Tough Harbour Chicks. Yeah. Matt Stogden. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Down the harbour. And Tim Matum. He's Vigo. <laughs> <laughs> to him, you are as the passing of flies. <laughs> I ain't afraid of no T Vigo. <laughs> <laughs> More tea, Vigo? <laughs> oh, that oh I missed trick. Oh, dear. So, it's been a week since our listeners have heard us discuss why Ghostbusters 2 is not good and why Tim loves Ghostbusters 2. <laughs> why, why Tim's taste is bad and wrong. Why <laughs> <laughs> Tim is inherently wrong. I think, ultimately, the fact that uh, a week has passed since Matthew has been berated by everyone on the internet for... All my opinions. Yes. And just Bill, Bill Murray is a saint. How dare you? Yeah, Fuck exactly. Off. So I'm going to come back to I Ain't Afraid of No Tea Vicar. Yo. If you could please refresh our listeners' minds with your title, your release year, your cast, elevator pitch, all that good stuff, please, sirs. Absolutely. Ghostbusters 2, spelt T O O, will be released in fictional space year 2007, directed by. Fancy man Edgar Wright. And that means Steve Crosby will be played by Simon Pegg. Keith Garrett will be played by Nick Frost. Miranda Stance is Tamsin Grieg. James Maidley is Peter Serafinowicz. Dana Venkman, Sigourney Weaver. Juliet Trebus, Rosamund Pike. Sean Scorer, Michael Smiley. I love Michael Smiley. And score by David Arnold. And here be Elevator Pitch. A small group of lazy, bored and incompetent Ghostbusters franchisees must get their act together in order to save rural England. Is rural England worth saving? No. That is the message of this movie. <laughs> this is, this is pre-Brexit England. So Ghostbusters yeah. 2 brackets yeah. fuck the countryside. <laughs> <laughs> Say fuck the country, son. <laughs> Michael Smiley was very, very good in that episode of Black Mirror. Oh, that's he was. Smiley's yes, kind of good bear. in everything he's in. He's great. In- he's secretly very good, isn't he? He's yeah. good in everything that Wheatley's directed. He's uh, yeah, he's a good guy. Mm. What did I see him in recently? Something good, and he was good in it. Your dreams. <laughs> he was very good in a sitcom pilot called Fishbowl, which nobody has ever seen. I don't mm. think. It's a shame because it was excellent. Disappointing. Mm. Okay. So let's delve into your pitch, please, gentlemen. Okay, we see the exterior of a very impressive old country home at dusk. Inside, a teenager is dragging round a large vacuum cleaner. He enters the library, and the lights flicker and go out. Scared, he stumbles towards the light switches, but stops when he sees a shadowy figure in one of the chairs. Now completely terrified, he takes a step backward, and it becomes clear that the figure was just a shadow. He sighs in relief, at which point a faintly glowing skeletal figure in a chair next to him leans forward and sternly shushes him. We cut back to the exterior of the building as the boy runs out screaming. 
the Ghostbusters theme plays and the famous logo appears. A wall fades in and the camera pulls out, revealing that the logo is actually a sign on the side of a small building next to a cafe. Inside, Steve Crosby sits on a sofa reading a book, whilst Keith Garrard sits behind a desk throwing peanuts into a mug about three feet away. This continues for a full 20 seconds before a phone rings. Keith answers it and informs the caller that they don't need any search engine optimization services. They go back to reading and peanut flipping. The silence is broken by the talkative Miranda Stance entering the building. She absentmindedly asks how they both are as she picks up some packages of flower arranging foam she's had delivered to the office. It becomes apparent that Steve and Keith live in the building, but Miranda, nominally the administrator, only pops her head in every few days and is far more interested in her hobby of flower arranging. Steve digs at her, saying she only got the job because her surname coincidentally happens to be Stance, which is good for PR, as it's the same as one of the original American Ghostbusters. Unfazed, Miranda says part of her job is PR. The phone rings again and Keith answers. It's a terrified representative of local National Trust property Felbrick Hall, who need urgent help with an unruly spook. The three are absolutely shocked. This is the first proper call they've had since they took over the office five years ago. Miranda panics and says she won't go and that she shouldn't even be there. Steve responds that she should be there every day from nine to six, not just using the place as a pickup service for parcels. Keith cuts through the bickering and says they need to leave immediately in order to keep up appearances, which is the only reason the government pays for their franchise these days. The three arrive at Felbrig Hall in a fully loaded replica of the Ghostbusters X01 vehicle, an impractical but PR-friendly machine. The only person present is the cleaner we saw at the start of the film, who is the one who made the call. Steve and Keith put on proton packs, take a ghost trap and head in, while Miranda tries to calm down the cleaner. The skeletal reader seems agitated, stalking about the library and knocking books on the floor. Keith takes a photo with his phone which enrages it. It starts shouting and Steve panics and fires off his proton pack. It becomes obvious that neither of them have any experience or useful practice at ghostbusting. After a protracted and heavily pyrotechnic bout of incompetence, they manage to capture the ghost at the cost of massive collateral damage. They take it out to Miranda and the three celebrate until they are cut short by a scream of What the hell have you done? It is Juliet Trebus, Senior Chairman of the National Trust and Vice President of the Campaign for Paranormal Heritage. She says the ghost is the major tourist attraction of the hall and they are to release it immediately while she calls the police and has them charged with criminal damage. Miranda says they were called in by an official representative but Juliet points out that they've destroyed a large part of the hall on the say-so of a panicking cleaner on his first day. The three are saved by the arrival of James Maidley. Juliet's boss at the National Trust and president of the Campaign for Paranormal Heritage. He is much friendlier and more understanding. He says they were only doing their job, but says they will have to pay for the damage and that they must put the ghost back. They release the spectre back into the library and sheepishly apologise as it glares at them and floats off. James says he will try and stop this becoming a big story in the media, but they walk outside to discover Juliet already speaking to a TV crew and slagging off the Ghostbusters to high heaven. James intervenes and tells the Ghostbusters to escape before the media turn on them. A journalist tries to stop them, but they claim to be flower arrangers whilst getting into what is clearly a ghostbusting vehicle and drive off. Miranda seems quite smitten with James. Overnight, the shit hits the fan and the morning newspapers are full of negative stories about them. 
Miranda is forced into an awkward Skype call with franchise coordinator Janine Milnitz, who bluntly informs her that the boss is coming over to take care of them personally, and they should probably start packing right now. But before they can properly wallow in their own misery, the phone rings again. It's the Swan Hotel, whose resident ghost is severely playing up, to the extent that they want it gone now. Worried about making the situation even worse, the gang reluctantly drive over. At the hotel, the ghostly bride in room 15 is going absolutely batshit at 10.30am in broad daylight. (laughs) It's puking ectoplasm everywhere and screeching and clawing at anyone who goes near the door. The gang tried to downplay it for fear of them cocking up the extraction and making things worse, but the owner points out that it started to eat the lintel and something must be done now. After double-checking that the hotel isn't owned by the National Trust, they try and bust the ghost. And it goes amazingly well. They quickly manage to subdue and trap it with no collateral damage whatsoever, and the hotel owner is ecstatic. They realise that they were watched by Dana Venkman, the Ghostbusters CEO, who comments on how they seem to have improved since yesterday. With her is someone they all recognise. It's Sean Scorer, an exceptionally rude arsehole who represents Norse Projects, a large company that has been trying to get hold of the UK Ghostbusters franchise for years. He's clearly upset that they managed to not cock this up and trades insults until Dana tells them to leave and she'll catch up with them later. Back at base, Dana explains that off the back of the negative publicity, she was about to call a breach of contract and sell the franchise out to Norse, but their good job at the hotel has earned them 24 hours to explain themselves. She is troubled by the ghost of the bride. She says that an apparition of that type shouldn't be so powerful and that possibly something may be spiking psychokinetic energy in the area. Keith points out that there was a weird symbol on the bride's forehead. He pulls up the photo he took of the ghost from Felbrick Hall, and there seems to be the faint outline of something similar. They are interrupted by Miranda pointing out a local news report on her phone. There is a video clip of Juliet, noticeably flanked by Sean Scorer, saying how the campaign for paranormal heritage are worried by the Ghostbusters' extreme actions. But James interjects and says that the campaign aren't just blindly pro-ghost. Dangerous ones need to be contained, obviously. Just look at what happened in New York 25 years ago. The gang cheer him, at which point he thanks them, and they scream with surprise as they realise he's literally standing behind them. James apologises for turning up unannounced, but he wanted to congratulate the Ghostbusters. He says that while Juliet doesn't see it, it's in nobody's interests for a big company to take over the franchise. They can't be trusted and may just smash ghosts for profit. He says if he can do anything to help, they should let him know. Steve asks him if he recognises the symbol. He says he's never seen anything like it. Steve points out that it's faintly on the head of the Felbrig Hall ghost too, and James is noticeably rattled. He says it definitely wasn't there before. He keeps a copy of the photo and says he'll look into it, then takes some time to flirt with Miranda before leaving. Dana says things are getting out of hand. She calls her husband Peter and says they need the real Ghostbusters. The gang have a big research session. Nothing comes up on the symbol, but Keith works out that both the Swan Hotel and Felbrig Hall are on ancient ley lines. Dana says that's interesting, but they need a third point of interest in order to work out an area something could be happening in. Miranda points to another location on a ley line and says, if somewhere like Ickworth House had trouble, then we'd have something to go on. The phone immediately rings. Steve answers, it's Ickworth House. There is a moment of silence, then Dana says she hopes the guys get here soon. We cut to Peter Venkman, Ray Stance, Egon Spengler and Winston Zedmore running past people in a queue at LaGuardia Airport and really pissing off those waiting patiently. Peter says, 
If they're pissed now, wait until they find out we've put a load of tiny weaponized nuclear reactors in the hold. The UK Ghostbusters arrive to find chaos at Ickworth House. The spirits of debauched aristocrats are running riot, and each of them has a symbol on their forehead, like the one previously seen, but with an extra line. Miranda, despite not attending the training weekend, straps on a proton pack whilst Dana takes charge of the traps. After a furious fight, they manage to catch all the ghosts with relatively low collateral damage. As they load up the Ectomobile, Dana says she's going to call off the Norse takeover, as they don't want to be sorting all this out in the middle of a regime change. James runs over to them and effusively thanks them for saving the trust property. He then looks around carefully before handing them a scrap of paper with an address on. He says that it's some ruins owned by the Trust, and they just got a call saying it has been vandalised with spray paint. Someone seems to have put a certain symbol on it. Keith points out that the ruins are almost right in the middle of the three haunted locations they've visited, and on a ley line. Steve, Keith and Miranda agree to check it out whilst Dana drives the traps back to base. She texts Peter and asks what their status is. We see him on a plane with the others, texting back saying he's about five hours away. Suddenly a tannoy announcement says that due to adverse weather conditions in the UK, the plane will be landing in Amsterdam instead. The Ghostbusters do not look amused. The UK trio are exploring a small set of old ruined walls. Steve is using a psychokinetic energy meter, but it's showing no reading, possibly because he doesn't know how to use it properly. Miranda is taking photos of the symbol, and Keith is attempting to Google details of the ruins with a weak data signal. On a nearby hill... Sean Scorer is watching the ruins through binoculars. He puts them down and makes a phone call to James Maidley. He says they're all in there as planned. James is pleased and says to detonate the explosives immediately. Sean is not keen. He says it seems a little bit extreme. James asks him if he wants the contract or not. After some back and forth, Sean takes a wireless switch from his pocket and presses it. The ruins violently explode, terrifying Sean, who wasn't expecting something so big. We see the ruins settle as the camera pans over to the trio watching from the Ectomobile parked nearby. Miranda says it's a good thing they went back for sandwiches. Steve calls Dana and tells her what happened, and that James was probably behind it as he gave them the location. She says that she's looked into the full symbol they saw at Ickworth, and that it's the mark of Marchosius, a demonic general. They need to do something as soon as possible. Miranda has called Juliet and tells her that her boss may be a conniving lying maniac and asks where he is. She says he's meeting with Norse at their offices. Keith points out that their head office is on a convergence of ley lines and in the area between the three haunted locations they've visited. They jump into the Exomobile and drive off, calling the police en route. They arrive at Norse's office to find police parked all around it. At first they think it's a big response to their call, then they realise it's probably due to the horrifying apparition of a giant winged wolf forming above the building. They discovered that Sean Scorer has arrived just before them and is terrified of what's going on, as well as the fact that the trio survived. The police arrest him and he explains that his plan was to take over the Ghostbusters franchise. Then James would use demonic rituals to increase psychic activity. This riles up local ghosts so that they could make more money by busting them. They needed the current Ghostbusters out of the way first, so James decided to earn their trust to make it easier to destroy them. But something seems to have gone horribly wrong. The police let the trio through at the end of the building to find that James has built a large symbol out of bones, and a huge, heavily muscled man in ancient armour is fading into existence inside it as an unearthly chanting rises. James has his arms spread wide, screaming his fealty. It seems this was his plan all along. 
Miranda smacks him on the head with a plant pot and he collapses, but the figure does not disappear. Steve realises that the figure is looking at him, and he says hello. It introduces itself as Marchosius, Marquis of Hell, and Commander of Thirty Legions. Steve asks what it's doing here, and the response is, I came as agreed, for invasion. Steve asks if he could perhaps not do that and go back to hell. Marchosius asks who they are. Keith says they're flower arrangers. Miranda says, oh, sod this, and opens fire with a proton pack. The other two follow suit. It seems to affect Marchosius, who fires back with beams of light that knock the Ghostbusters around the room. Unable to stop him, the Ghostbusters watch as the now fully materialised Marchosius goes to step out of the symbol, but Juliet suddenly runs in and kicks some of the bones, breaking the pattern. Marchosius instantly disappears, the chanting stops and everything is normal. After a few awkward moments of silence as everyone looks at her in awe, Juliet says, Oh, come on, that was obvious. They meet Dana outside, who says, I've got some people who want to speak to you, and holds up her mobile on speakerphone. We cut to the original Ghostbusters in Amsterdam, already stoned out of their minds, semi-comprehensibly saying how much they love the UK guys. Egon, apparently the only sober one, shushes them, and says that they have a very special job offer for all of them in New York. Dana says it's the offer of a lifetime. The three confer briefly, but refuse, saying they've got business here in the UK, and they now have the drive and ambition to make it something special. We cut to the three of them running a flower shop. Signs in the window say, Arrangements of Speciality, and Official Flower Providers to the Campaign for Paranormal Heritage. They are all happy and engaged in their work. The credits roll over a cover of the Ghostbusters theme song, Played by the Darkness. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know that was a thing. I'm just not rock enough. But you are Norfolk enough. (laughs) I fuck Nam. (laughs) Ask why the darkness is playing the music at the end, because them's from fucking Suffolk, isn't they? That means they're... Yeah, Lowestoft. 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 The Human Torch applied for a bank loan. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So, over to the Tough Harbour Chicks. Yeah. Hit me with your pitch, please, gentlemen. Hang on one sec, Jack. You're leaning into your mic there, creating some of them rubs with the mic stand. Mm. Nuzzles, eh? Yeah. Nuzzling that mic stand. Mic stand. You need what to you move mean? your foot because you're you're pushing the mic stand against the bottom of the chair oh, I see. there, and that all picked up. Struggle boy, I will do that again. Yeah. Also, we've got to do casting things first. Yeah. Oh, of course, yes. Thank you. Yeah, Sorry, I couldn't have fucked that up more. <coughs> so over to the tough harbour chicks. Can you please refresh the listeners' minds with your team name? I don't know. I'm fucking idiot. With your film title, your elevator pitch, and your cast and crew, please, sirs. Of course, we are Ghostbusters Inc., or at least the film is, and it'll be released in the year 1996, directed by Joe Johnston. The returning cast will be original cast cameos, largely through archive footage. Our new cast is Freddy Rodriguez as Eduardo Rivera, Robin Tunney as Kylie Griffin, Taraji P. Henson as Yolanda Jackson, Eric Avari as Hitesh Miller, and for those paying attention with knowledge of Extreme Ghostbusters, you may notice some similarities in character names there. Mm-hmm. Playing Cartwright, we have Daniel Stern as Dr. Bream, Tim Robbins, and performing creature effects, we have Doug Jones with the vocal talents of Frank Welker. 
And we also have special makeup effects by Rick Baker of lots and lots and lots of films. Mm-hmm. And our composer is Wojciech Kielar. Am I pronouncing that right? Wojciech. Wojciech Kielar, who did Bram Stoker's Dracula, Ninth Gate, The Pianist. Lots of chilly horror films. We're going pretty straight down the middle with that one. Mm-hmm. Our pitch is in a world where ghostbusting is a run-of-the-mill blue-collar profession. A fresh troop of ghostbusters are dispatched on their first assignment. And stuff happens. Well, speaking of the stuff that happens, let's delve into the pitch. Okay. A decade after the Ghostbusters first appeared, their success is now widespread, and Ghostbusters has become a franchise, with multiple teams set up in major cities around the world, under the brand Ghostbusters Inc. The novelty of ghosts has become something of an everyday occurrence, and the Ghostbusters are seen as glorified pest control. All of this is explained to a small group of potential franchisees who are led around the rundown museum, which used to be the original Ghostbusters HQ, by Lewis Tully, played by Rick Moranis. As the tour continues, we see relics of the original team's past missions. Most of the tour don't appear very interested, apart from Eduardo Rivera, who talks to the others about seeing the Ghostbusters in action when he was younger. At this point, one of the other visitors begins to ask questions about the firehouse itself, more interested in the time it was used for firefighting. Sighing, Lewis shows them to the pole, and they all eagerly line up to slide down it. Before he slides down the pole, Eduardo tells Lewis that he can't wait to save New York City from danger, just like the original Ghostbusters did. Eduardo exits Minneapolis Airport into thick snow and makes his way via bus to a grungy-looking former drying cleaners, where four other individuals are waiting. Cartwright introduces himself to Eduardo and explains he is part of a bureaucratic agency assigned to monitor and oversee the safety and processes of each Ghostbusters Inc. team. Head office has already placed ads for Ghostbusters and assigned Eduardo three new recruits, Kylie, Yolanda and Hitesh. Hitesh asks when the training will begin, to which Cartwright hands them a thin binder telling them there is no official training, but everything he needs to know is in this welcome pack, and the original four were fine making it up as they went along. Yolanda comments that they were qualified scientists, to which Cartwright retorts, well every team has one, that's why you're here. Yolanda protests, explaining she's only just graduated, but Cartwright hastily leaves and the group awkwardly get to know one another. They are interrupted by a ringing phone, and initially argue over who should answer it. Sighing and rolling her eyes, Kylie stomps over and answers the call. With a modicum of excitement, she relays it's their first assignment. After a montage of the team haphazardly getting ready, we cut to the group in the car. Yolanda is running through an instruction manual for the proton packs while Eduardo is driving, taking directions from Hitesh, frantically rotating a map. Finally arriving at their destination, they encounter a goat-faced demonic beast flying around an apartment building. A little shaken by their first task, the group takes the lift to the roof, Hitesh nervously humming along to the Muzak to the derision of his colleagues. On the roof, the team flail with their proton packs, Yolanda screaming at them not to cross the streams. Eduardo is trying to coordinate the team when Hitesh recognises the beast as the Jersey Devil. Kylie says the Jersey Devil was caught by Ghostbusters Inc. years ago, leading Hitesh to hypothesise this must be some sort of offspring. The team managed to force the demon to the edge of the roof, where it drops a small pouch, but ultimately the monster gets away. Taking a moment, the team celebrate a job well done, engaging in a silly, miscoordinated dance. Later that day, the group gathers in a bar to share stories about how and why they got into ghostbusting. Yolanda echoes what she said earlier, that she is a recently graduated physicist looking for experience in any form of scientific field. 
Kylie mentions she got into the paranormal after the death of her grandmother. Eduardo explains that all his family are cops, but he wants to be the first Rivera to do something different, and Hitesh dismissively comments that he just needs a steady paying job while his son is bleeding him dry in college. Kylie looks at the contents of the pouch and reveals a mysterious ceramic tile within. The group agree for her to take it home and conduct research. The next morning, the hungover team arrive at work to find Cartwright waiting for them. He calmly takes them to the basement and shows them the only new-looking section of the building. He then proceeds to explain the importance of the containment unit, and that a job isn't done until the ghosts, demon, or other paranormal beings are safely deposited into the unit, all of which is tracked as the various vaults are linked worldwide. Eduardo brings up the details of their first mission, which Cartwright dismisses, explaining some Jersey Devil ripoff is hardly front-page news, nor is an old roof tile in a bag. On his way out, Cartwright explains that in spite of the Ghostbusters unions, the government decides how these things are run, and without a certified capture, they won't be getting paid. The group are left silent before Kylie explains that her research into the tile led to the local archaeologist, Dr. Bream, who uncovered the tile a few weeks ago. Kylie posits that returning the tile to Dr. Bream may help locate their target. The Ghostbusters visit the Minnesota Institute of Art and see Dr. Bream. They try to return the tile to him, but he explains that his has not gone missing. He explains that they are part of a set which he has been after, and he can take it off their hands for safekeeping. Kylie is reluctant, it being their only lead, but Eduardo says it's the right place for it. Back to square one, the team return to the dry cleaners. The phone is already ringing, so Yolanda runs over to answer it. The caller is clearly quite hostile and eventually hangs up on her. Yolanda relays that the Jersey Devil Jr. has appeared around Target Field. The team arrive at the stadium as a baseball game is in full swing, and are met out front by the stadium manager, played by Tim Meadows who explains that the demon is raiding their trophy collection and he doesn't want to panic as it was cause a huge financial loss. The team work through the building quietly and find JD Jr. breaking open the base of a trophy to reveal another tile, which it places into a pouch. Spotting the Ghostbusters, the monster growls before crashing through a wall. The group give chase, eventually finding themselves on the field, disturbing the Minnesota Twins game, much to the chagrin of the crowd. Working together, they manage to capture the demon and celebrate to themselves, but are swiftly arrested and escorted away under the hail of camera flashes and boos echoing the stadium. The group sit in a holding cell, protesting the importance of getting the trap back to the containment unit, but are informed by the police that their lawyers are on the way. The team discuss their failings, and Eduardo excuses himself to make a phone call. Dialing his older brother, Miguel, a policeman in New York City, Eduardo asks him if he can do anything to get him released, but Miguel tells Eduardo that he is mortified by his kid brother's actions. He says their family have worked hard to make a name for themselves, and in one action, Eduardo has thrown all of that away. While this is going on, Yolanda quietly explains to Tesh and Kylie that JD Jr. had another tile, and she's worried that Dr. Bream may be targeted for his collection. Eventually, Cartwright arrives, clearly at the end of his rope. He chastises the team, highlighting that their actions have drawn media attention and their group is under a microscope now. Ghostbuster Inc.'s CEO has been made aware. The group apologise and hand over the trap, saying Cartwright can take it to their empty containment unit. Cartwright sighs and explains that the containment unit is actually a link to the ecto-dimension, something he mentioned the other day had they paid attention. Rather than a single holding box, it's a doorway to the biggest prison in the world. Cartwright arranges for the team to be released, but while he's dealing with an officious desk officer, played by Phil Hartman, the team ditch him, retrieve their confiscated equipment, and dash across the city to the museum. 
Upon arrival, the team find the museum closed but break in. Eventually, they locate Dr. Bream in the basement, walking around a steampunk-looking device, slotting the tiles into the mechanism. Aware of their presence, he turns to face them, his eyes glowing red. Stretching out his hand, Dr. Bream summons the trap and releases the Jersey Devil offspring inside. The group look on, stunned, as Dr. Bream places the final tile into the mechanism. He goes on to explain that he has been studying ley lines and noticed that many of the... Yeah, seriously, ley lines. <laughs> he goes on to explain that uh, he's been studying ley lines and noticed that many of them intersect in Minneapolis, which is the only reason someone of his genius is in such a rundown museum. Hitesh, proud to be a Minnesotan, takes offence and powers up his proton pack. Yolanda, however, talks him down, saying that because they don't know anything about the device, activating a beam may cause any number of negative effects. With an obsessed expression, Dr. Bream reveals he has always wanted to know what's on the other side. Kylie, realising the device bears a similarity to the containment unit, although it's clearly much older, explains the other side isn't some heavenly plane of existence, it's an interdimensional prison, and he's clearly under the influence of one of its inmates. Dr. Bream merely laughs and triggers the device. Beams of light pour out of the machine and suck both the Jersey Devil and Dr. Bream inside before powering down. In the stillness, Hitesh asks if they won. After a brief pause, Eduardo confesses he has no idea what has happened. Yolanda explains they were most likely both sucked into the Ecto dimension. Again, Hitesh asks if they have won, but Kylie explains they can't leave an innocent man in that hostile environment. After a bit of a pep talk, they decide to tie a hose around Eduardo's waist and fire up the machine, leaving Hitesh in charge of keeping the gate open with his proton pack. Venturing inside, Yolanda, Eduardo and Kylie travel to the Ecto dimension. Inside they are confronted by a strange, cavernous, glowing structure of tunnels, leading off in all directions, and ghosts passing through the walls, seemingly oblivious to the newcomers. Cowering in the corner is Dr. Bream, seemingly free from the effects of the possession. The team grab him and pull on the hose, only for the portal to disappear, severing the hose. Back in our world, Hitesh's pack makes a gurgling sound and fails to start. Bream wails, alerting several nearby entities. The team brace themselves and fend off a few attacking creatures who have noticed their arrival. As they do this, the cave shakes, and in the distance, a giant ghostly creature, shaped similar to that of the uh, one in the Ghostbusters logo, lumbers towards them. Panicking, the group ready their wands and fire at the monster, but it barely seems to slow it down. Bream hides behind the Ghostbusters, pointing out their attacker is the creature that took up residence in his head. It wanted to open the gate for everything to come through. Eduardo quips that it must not have realised it would be a one-way trip back to the clink. Several spirits, demons and phantasms charge into the fray as the creature looms over them. Suddenly the portal reopens and all four individuals fall through just in time to avoid being crushed. On the other side, Hitesh welcomes his friends only to see the monstrous ghost's head forcing itself through the remnant of the portal. Panicking, everyone shrieks and ignites their packs before Yolanda takes off her pack slides it over to the device and tells her comrades to fire on it. With the proton pack glowing and about to go critical, Kylie asks, Wait, aren't these things nuclear? There follows a mighty explosion and everyone is sent flying, but the bulk of the impact is absorbed in the open portal and sucked into the ecto-dimension. Debris settles to the floor to reveal the five individuals lying there, exasperated. Eduardo wearily taps Dr. Bream on the leg and tells him that their office will send him a bill. A week later, Cartwright is nervously pacing outside the dry cleaners, which now displays the fully installed Ghostbusters Inc. logo. 
awaiting an imminent arrival from the company's CEO. The Ghostbusters watch from behind their desks as a car pulls up and a groveling Cartwright shows their boss inside. A shrill New York accent calls through the building, asking everyone to line up. The boss introduces herself as Janine Melnitz. She initially chastises the group for their actions, but ultimately thanks them, much to Cartwright's surprise. She explains that their actions have finally given the company and the unions the necessary clout over the government to address many of the concerns she's had, and as a result, she's arranged for a proper academy to be set up for newly inducted Ghostbusters. Janine explains this team will be among the first wave of students, but the job will be waiting for them when they graduate. Over the credits, we are treated to a montage of Eduardo, Kylie, Yolanda and Hitesh training at the academy under the tutelage of their lecturers, Doctors, Venkman, Spengler, Stance and Zedmore. Dr. Zedmore, motherfuckers. Finally got his PhD. And that's us. So coming back to I Ain't Afraid of No Tea Vicar, which is just... Uh... <laughs> I mean, the Britishness of the tea vicar suddenly makes sense with how British yeah, your choice. Yeah. 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 You're that's welcome. Fun. You yeah. are very welcome. <laughs> so my first question is, with it being Edgar Wright and all, any ideas for a soundtrack? He's kind of famous for his choice selections of licensed music any ideas did you have thoughts going in he's not allowed to <laughs> i'm sick of his bloody soundtracks he's gonna get david arnold to do some nice music for his film and he's gonna fucking appreciate it and he's gonna write him a little thank you card at the end and he's gonna fucking mean it Stuart, basket of muffins Stuart is edgar wright's mum yes. <laughs> I must admit, he hasn't called me for weeks. <laughs> Quentin Tarantino does it really well with the really obscure references. Every time Edgar Wright does it, I'm like, oh, that's a bit of an obvious choice. So I agree. I think you're right to curb him. He'll take the darkness doing the Ghostbusters theme and he'll be bloody happy with that. <laughs> I don't know if he would. At this stage, he's only done Shaun of the Dead as a sort of a big film. So the studio could perhaps rein him in a little bit. Especially and not that many wink, wink, I'm a clever boy movie references the audience and all that See kind Ant-Man. of stuff. Especially given that he's holding the reins to a big franchise. And I think at a time when people weren't letting directors run rampant with a big franchise, as they're more inclined to do now, I think some of the more out-there Edgar Wright-isms would have to be curbed for this in general. Which makes me think he might tell you guys to fuck off. Because anytime <laughs> oh, no. he, tr- he tries This to is cut- how he gets the money to make his... Uh whatever annoying film he wants to make next. <laughs> this is a really interesting point, because I hadn't considered this. Yeah, we actually have this example in Genuine History with Ant-Man, because he literally had a franchise, had his own idea. They said, well, we can make a few changes. Literally, can you just make it part of the MCU? And he said, I'm fucking out. I wonder if he would say the same with Ghostbusters, saying the whole, fuck your franchise. No, this is how he gets the money for Baby Driver. He knows he has to hang in for this one. Then he can be super fucking awkward for the rest of his life. <laughs> I think also because we've caught him at a point, I think, because that is 10 years later you're talking I about. I assume you just lock him in a room until he goes insane. Yeah. And it's just like, make the film yeah. for us. But That's how Hollywood works. Yeah. <laughs> so it's coming out 23 years after the original. Absolutely. Mm. Do you think people will still care about Ghostbusters? Cause what a ridiculous we- question. People still masturbate themselves to death <laughs> at so much as a hint of the Ghostbusters logo. Have you met Paul Gannon? <laughs> I've not, no. That's because he masturbated himself to death <laughs> when I showed him a Ghostbusters logo. Oh, that's brilliant. That does explain a lot. So in this universe, does real Ghostbusters happen and it's very successful and it keeps the franchise going and all the toys Ooh, and shit yeah. happen? But it's mostly nostalgia-led. And then nothing happens for 20 years. 
And then that yep. happens. And nobody gets angry. Well, you're angry. like sneakily putting some cartoons in the middle there. Just like, no, no, I think it goes pretty much as it did. But um, nobody gets so angry about the reboot because in my universe, people are a little bit less dickish. What kind of fucking heavenly plane is that? <laughs> because, yeah, when we do sequelizers, we don't just get to rewrite sequels. <laughs> we get to rewrite the audiences as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. And Edgar Wright as a person. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like you'd get a lot less complaints because it's not an all-female cast. But you'd probably still get a lot of complaints of people going, well, the first one's a new, such a New York film and now you moved it to England. Yeah. I like how, I like how your people complaining about this are so London as well. <laughs> like, I'm from London, I'm complaining. Uh, which, to be fair, we get exactly the same complaint because we move it to Minnesota. I think also would have more chance of being made because it'd be lower budget. Less of a risk for the studio. Yeah, if if Ghostbusters by that point was a bit of a sleeper thing, it's 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 enough of a niche that you know they're going to turn around and be like, yeah, fuck it, why not? Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. It's Edgar Wright, Simon Pegg, Nick Frost. Since we live in the universe where Hot Fuzz exists and the World's End exists and whatever else they've done together, yeah, but. The, the chemistry between those two didn't feel like an integral part of the film like it does with the other in the Cornetto trilogies. Was that a conscious decision? Or oh, yes. Just, okay. I'm a, see, it was much as I like the Peg Frost thing. I mean, they've done it, what, uh, four times now in the real world, including Paul, because it's kind of oh, them different directors. Yeah. Fucking yeah, um, yeah so that was an Edgar Wright. No, 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 but it's a, you, can include, like, you can include it as well, mm. and like space as well, it's all... Part and part of the yeah, same dynamic. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of like that space thing more where there's a bit more distance, not necessarily between the characters, but with the fact that you've got more people around. It's not all just, here's these two guys. I, Plus I'd everyone really, else. Like, yeah, yeah, I'd quite like to see more of an ensemble thing with them in it where they're just part of it as opposed to, it's all about them. Which I think they kind of tried with The World's End, but... Became nothing but about them. Exactly. Rightisms. Take two male characters... Have them be polar opposite friends. One's a kind of fuck up. One's kind of not. And which one's really the fuck up? Oh. oh. I remember people coming up to me like after World's End and saying, oh, wasn't that the best film ever? I'm like, you need to shut the fuck up. One of my favourite sort of movie analysts it is his favourite film ever. Oh, he needs to shut the fuck mm. up. One of the reasons I like him, though, is because I disagree with him quite a lot. That's and it's, it's quite interesting. And there's the whole... I mean, this is a problem with Ghostbusters in general in the fact that ghosts are real. That should be a big, <laughs> like, incredibly big deal. I like ghosts the fact that you ghost. kind of took it out of New York and that shows that it's not just a New York thing, that kind of thing. But it's, I don't know if there should be, like, more... Feels like the world would be weirder. This is set in the same universe and it's 20 years later. The world might be a bit weirder with ghosts being around for that long that kind of thing well my thinking on this is that uh, it was the massive spike in uh, goes the goes area and stuff blah 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 that made all the ghosts go crazy which we kind of hint at the similar thing here but after that it all went back down to the level it was before so now people know ghosts are real so they're more interested in trying to catch a glimpse Hence of the tourism um, and the exactly the tourism right, that yeah. but it's not the case of where they're all flying around going whoa that was my ghost noise. If uh, you want to use that in I your was films, please call me. I got a chill. Mm. My nipples are hard. Then at least I've succeeded at something today. And with the original cast kind of, I guess, cameoing, essentially, I wonder how many people that would piss off, but I know your 
fuck the audience mentality, Stuart. That is well established in this podcast. But the ending with those guys felt a bit kind of, I don't know, not necessarily out of character because you've still got Egon as the sober one, which I did appreciate. It just felt a bit kind of, I don't know if it meshes tonally with the rest of the film. I wanted to make them feel very a bit frat boy, okay, where they've had all this stuff going on for years. They're not kind of doing anything. So the whole thing is, uh, you English guys, you ain't the real Ghostbusters. You're just sitting in your room and asking about, but that's actually what the original Ghostbusters have now become. And in fact, it's Janine who's doing the coordinating. It's Dana who's actually running the company. And these guys are just kind of asking about a bit. Egon's still got his head um, on because he's Egon, he's Harold Ramis, he's great. But the rest, I mean, they're supposed to be rushing over there and they get caught in Amsterdam. Well, we're in Amsterdam, you're like, fuck you guys, like, there's serious shit going on, we need you. <laughs> well, we're stuck in, it'd be rude not to, and you're like, ah, oh. so hence why they're dicks to people when they're going to the airport in the first place and uh, why they end up there. Because again, back to my Bill Murray thing, I can, I can see that being a thing. I can definitely see everyone hating it still. But again, if you're being antagonistic for the sake of it and saying they are, they are the antagonist kind of people, I think that's right. But um, yeah, I mean, it's such a tonal shift. Um, but in universe, in canon, I guess that makes sense. I think it's also, it has to be a tonal shift because this is, I mean, it is a Ghostbuster sequel, but it's also a pagan frost thing and it's it does have that scene change and i think ultimately when we were talking about this we went and i think you guys have kind of done the same thing and we went it has to be this because to make a straight sequel to ghostbusters with those characters again there isn't a lot of room that that leaves you to actually make a film and to make it have impact and to tell a story Ghostbusters is one of those weird films because, and everybody talks about the lightning in a bottle thing, but it's a script that shouldn't really work. When you look at it on paper, Ghostbusters is a weird old movie and it rejects many of the conventions that we expect from script writing. It's, it's, a, it's a bizarre screenplay and I think you've got to do something different with it. And that does mean almost then sending up the characters of the first film if you're going to have them appear at all because otherwise it is yeah it is interesting but if you if you take the the sort of general overview of both the pictures they're kind of the same thing i was just about to say that yeah i'm thinking they you both have gone further in the future than just five years ahead you've both got a complete change of setting and a new cast and kind of cameo references to the original cast but not necessarily in a positive way you both had ley lines and janine being a big part of the corporation going forward and she's actually the one that has her head screwed on they're different pitches but similar in a lot of interesting ways i did find it funny when you're like yeah fucking ley lines (laughs) seriously certain things were said i I didn't want to just turn tim and go (laughs) someone's been in our bin (laughs) i I have been in their bin just uh, full culpability there no, it's one of those things, if you wanted to fix the original Ghostbusters film and release it in the same year and all that, I think if you were just to write out a synopsis of Ghostbusters 2, that would work in that sense. It's just, we know it doesn't work, yeah. so we've got to do something different. So coming over to the Tough Harbour Chicks. Yeah. So I think the, the big question, the obvious question, and, and something you've mentioned and alluded to, mm. why extreme Ghostbusters and why kind of... From my limited understanding of Extreme Ghostbusters, I've seen a couple of episodes and Mm -hmm. I watched one in preparation for this as well. 
it takes bits from Extreme Ghostbusters, but it's not kind of straight storytelling from from those mm. characters. Why choose Extreme Ghostbusters, and why choose to take only certain aspects rather than taking the whole thing? We thought it, you know, Extreme Ghostbusters sort of again. You know, I think I watched several episodes of it back as a when it came out originally, but it wasn't, you know, something that super defined my childhood or, or teen years or whatever. Mm. But it did seem like a very well done way of continuing that universe and moving the original characters into sort of almost like a legacy position um, you know taking that they have a step back from the action and there's a new generation who are coming along you know and that was something that we we very much wanted to do with the film because like you say you can't recapture that lightning in the bottle so you need a new group stepping in with regards to the changes there are two very clear points i think that would not necessarily answer the question, but certainly point to something. First of all, we're releasing our film in 1996. Extreme Ghostbusters doesn't come out until 1997, I believe. Mm-hmm. What we're doing here is creating a film that is then imitated by television differently in the same way the television series, The Real Ghostbusters, is an impression of the Ghostbusters film for a different audience. So if anything, our film would be the original version and then it'd be reworked for television. So, for example, in the Extreme Ghostbusters series, you have uh, Garrett Miller, Kylie Griffin, Eduardo Rivera and uh, Roland Jackson. And um, we merely took some of the names, some of the situations, and we thought, well, we'll and do something. Be inter- some of the personality traits. Oh, some of the, certainly, yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And also some of the little... Um, Quirky aspects, because I think in in the Extreme Ghostbusters series, there is, I think, one episode where Eduardo's brother has mentioned that he is a cop in the long line of cops, and they're all cops, and his brother's disappointed him and all that sort of stuff. I think there is the thing about Kylie and her her grandmother as well. Yes, we took took bits of it. We just changed it so it would be... Not necessarily more diverse, because let's face it, it's a Extreme Ghostbusters is really diverse. You've got uh, a guy in a wheelchair, you have a female member of the team, you have an Afro-American on the team, you have a Latino on the team. It's a really good, diverse 90s cast. We thought we'd just do it slightly differently for film and do a different story. We actually had a conversation about wheelchairs, strange enough, saying, mm. should we put Hitesh in a wheelchair? And they said, no, we don't. We don't need to do that. And also, we'd be very worried what the 90s would do with that in television form. And it would be... Sorry, (laughs) sorry, film form, I should say. And what could become awful jokes out of that. In the way it's shot. And the difference also between the character of Hitesh being a cantankerous, grumpy old man taking the job because he has to. Mm. Whereas in the TV series, I'm pretty sure he was a real... Adrenaline was, junkie, a, yeah, kind of, almost you know, a jock. Yeah, very much. A, like, I don't want to be constrained by this chair, kind of thing. And we wanted someone who was a, a, a show a range of people doing this kind of job that it is literally pest control that nobody really wants to do the job, but they will have their reasons why they're doing it. Fair enough. Having it in 1996, what kind of special effects are you thinking for the ecto dimension? Is that kind of a full? 1990s CGI kind of thing? No, or? Christ, no. No, this would be... Uh, the best example we can give for, in terms of tone, uh, for, for, like, you know, uh, the, th- the themes of the film and everything, and also with visuals and practicals, is Jumanji. Mm. Uh, Johnson directing Jumanji. At the time, was very forward and progressive and really... It still holds up quite well, actually, when you go back and watch it now. Those monkeys are a bit questionable. Uh, the but, monkeys are bad, yes, yeah. that's true. But the rest of it is impressive, and the, and, the, and the set design is amazing, and the props and things like for example when the stampede busts through the the library for example they had a huge 
piston thing that just just rammed the books off the shelf, and then they include them in CGI, and and again the the models, and it was a time of CGI coming up whereby it wasn't full. I think Lawnmower Man around the same time, <laughs> sort of like creating full CGI worlds. I'm going, oh, that looks. Mm. <laughs> we brought in Rick ba- Rick Baker as as a kind of the especially the Jersey Devil Junior, but also the um the creatures that show up later in the Ecto Dimension would be very much like special makeup effects, physical it, uh, much played, played by Doug Jones. Yes. I like yes. multiple things played by Doug Jones. Mm-hmm. Jersey mm-hmm. Devil Junior, giant ghost creature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. Right, that makes sense. Speaking of those ghosts at the end there, you kind of have just the one ghost repeating just the Jersey Devil Junior for one of a better phrase. And then all the fucking ghosts at the end. I don't know if maybe I could have done with a few more ghosts. Bit of variety. To kind of, yeah, variety at the beginning mm-hmm. to kind of establish them a little bit more. And Because mm. like you said, it, it's a world where, similar to the other team's pitches, where it's established that ghosts are a thing and it's become a run-of-the-mill kind of normal thing. I, I maybe would have liked to have seen a few more kind of just doing normal jobs kind of thing. We'd probably cover that a little bit in the museum sequence at the start yeah. when you're seeing, um, you know, the kind of fictional history of, you know, what's been happening in the past 10 years. Um, we do have the, the big mass of ghosts at the end as well. Mm. But I think we also wanted to have this feeling of this is this guy, the, this this particular group's first day on the job and it manages to be this gigantic screw-up of a mission. If they hadn't suddenly had something else to deal with, they would have a, they would eventually have a victory there somewhere. They'd have to have something. And the whole point is that they fail continuously in their eyes, at least. Um, and they have this foible, as it were, this this this, this uh, antagonist that's their, their one nemesis, as it were. And yeah, I think ultimately if we had de- deviated from the main plotline to do a subplot of then they catch another ghost and it's all fine, or a little montage or something, it, it would have probably worked fine but I think it would have taken away from the pacing and from the urgency of the story and the, and the sort of mystery side of it and trying to solve the what's happened and uh, Bream's plan, all that sort of stuff. Again, could have done, but then when it's all ramping up to this final uh, showdown with basically, you know, again, also we want to, to hint peripherally at this world of ghosts and things and, you know, maybe in the background there'd be an advert on TV for Ghostbusters and, you know, them sighing, oh, that's not us, that kind of thing. All that shit going on, oh, like like billboard, passing billboards, that kind of thing. Like, oh, cool, Ghostbusters, things like that around the world for universe building, but not seeing it until you see this massive prison and saying, oh my god, this is everything. This is terrifying. The, the sort of Avengers style, whereby you know you've got lots of little encounters, and then when you finally have the end battle, it's so big and so ridiculous, and like you know the the Loki lines send the rest kind of thing. You're like, holy shit, mm-hmm. just being an overwhelmingly large uh, impact. Or to use perhaps a more apt metaphor, like an everyday encounters with, you know, you occasionally might see a rat or a cockroach. And then at the end is where you like watch some like one of these reality TV programs where they're like, oh, we went down into the sewer and here's this army of cockroaches that have (laughs) devoured children. Yeah. Eaten a crocodile. Yeah. And just to go back to the to the to the Jersey Devil thing, I think it also given the fact that we've we've got Doug Jones in there. And and Frank Welker doing like his amazing work with mm. with vocalization and stuff, uh, it it gives us a chance to have a ghost that's got a bit more personality, but isn't Slimer. But also, we want to make sure as well it has this sort of parallel to the idea that these are second rate, so that you you're not the Ghostbusters. Everyone loves the original guys. They're all, as you say, legacy now. They're all um, infamous, as it were. And the idea that 
they say, no, the Jersey Devil is caught. This is just some sort of offspring. This is some sort of fucking rip-off. This, this is, is bullshit. This is the Jersey Devil's, like, red-headed stepchild, yeah. basically. And we're sort of effectively preempting initial audience reaction of, what do you mean, new cast? That kind of thing. Of like, oh, this is all bullshit. And then saying, no, no, no. Stay with us. <laughs> I mean, we've talked about Joe Johnston a little bit there as well. I wonder if his take on it like the main thing i'm thinking of here is captain america the first avenger which you guys mentioned in that ghostbusters 2016 goes to comedy and there's almost nothing else holding that film up apart from like look how wacky we all there's no straight people like to bounce off of and all that kind of stuff i wonder if yours maybe goes a bit too actiony and not enough comedy and doesn't find the balance that again the original is like kind of that lightning in a bottle kind of moment where you get the perfect balance of the funny lines Ramus's deadpan delivery and Aykroyd and Murray kind of playing off that and do you think you'd be able to were you aiming for that dynamic or are you looking to go a bit more serious what's no, the kind of thought no I think we've got a different that? dynamic but same thing because there are little bits that allude to it like the, the, the drive over for example to them their first mission I can imagine being Rodriguez just like trying to tell them all to you know shut up while he contrasts on, concentrates on the road and Yolanda screaming at them with the instructions on how to operate a propon pack, proton pack and Hitesh rotating the map and be like you've got to go down this road and then being all so hectic in the car with them all screaming at each other and then them crashing through the stadium trying just fumbling all over each other i think the physicality of it all would be funny and i think it would be less let's give them funny lines and funny things to do and more just the dynamic of an old man who doesn't want to be there two young women who don't really like each other or don't really get on each other and not it's ever in the thing but they don't have anything in common and a guy who's trying to leave everybody doesn't really know how or why, doesn't like where he's placed, Doesn't he's out of sorts. Everything feels, for lack of a better word, diehard. And diehard is funny as hell. And it's funny because of the attitudes and the reactions, not necessarily because, of, I mean, yeah, okay, Bruce Willis has got a few random weird lines, but ultimately it's the same principle in my opinion. And it's, it's you know, to, to go back to Jumanji, it's that the the weird and the extraordinary kind of infringing on the ordinary world, there's a lot of kind of natural comedy that comes out of that. And I think the cast that we've got are are not necessarily, you know, people who are, you know, you'd point to and go, that's a great comic actor, but they've all given good comedy performances. I think, you know, Taraji P. Henson, probably the, you know, best known for doing, you know, great sort of character work in stuff like Empire and, and mm. being quite a, you know, larger than life character. Well, Eric Avari's come off like California man. Yes, Weez the yeah. juice and shit. <laughs> so, and and he goes on to be like the mummy. I think. Yeah, and um, yeah. Robin Tunney at this point would have just done Empire Records, where she would have played a very similar like grumpy goth girl um, who's head. still with a shaved head, who still manages to have a lot of like funny lines in there. So, I think we'd find a good balance. And Rodriguez would play it probably the the sort of straight man of the group trying to be the leader, but then he plays the straight man of the group trying to be the leader in Planet Terror. Yeah. And he's he's funny as fucking that, so yeah. I'll come back to the, the the tough harbor chicks. I really enjoyed how you guys used the extreme Ghostbusters because I, it's arguably the best version of Ghostbusters. It's the best sequel it's to a, Ghostbusters. It's certainly the best <laughs> sequel to Ghostbusters. And I like having the diverse cast, and you changed up a little bit and kind of modernized it in a way that is still working in the '90s. I think it's not kind of sticking with the same bunch of characters. I like how both teams kind of got rid of the original and, like we said, built on that kind of legacy thing. I like how you have the twist with Bream because he 
instantly seems like a not okay guy <laughs> and <laughs> just get that impression from jim robbins of like yeah he'd, he'd play a skeevy creepy dude pretty easily i feel i feel like this is probably before in terms of timeline but i i quite like the idea of having him channel his like performance from high fidelity and be oh, quite yeah. like a hippy dippy yeah, dude yeah. to start with and then go patchouli yeah. motherfucker and go evil he's 99 it's a couple years later yeah, yeah. yeah. a few years later uh, i like the idea of the ecto dimension as well having this this giant kind of prison style almost like you said like the avengers where they have this or, or like dc comics where you got like the phantom zone was like, like put all the super villains in one place and they can try and escape and the fact that you have kind of this like king of the ghosts kind of guy trying to escape <laughs> and and it's the logo, and I liked the callback to the logo. I'm I'm imagining him popping through, so it kind of looks almost like the logo, and then the portal closes, and yeah, that kind of thing. Going to be the villain from Ghostbusters 2016, virtually. Yep, that's right. That's yeah. yeah, pretty much. And back over to I Ain't Afraid of No T-Vicker. I really enjoyed Peg and Frost. I think they're fantastic. And I like the fact that, as we kind of discussed, Hot Fuzz is fine, Like, but I like the fact that we go straight from Shaun of the Dead and it's something that we're doing a lot in modern times where you go from, oh, an indie guy made an indie film, now let's give him a franchise and see what he does with it. And I'd be very interested to see what 2007, well, I guess 2006, 2007, Edgar Wright and the team would be doing with that and how they would kind of adapt that. Because they're all nerds and I assume, yeah, they put their own spin on it in an interesting way. I also really liked having it completely different setting those guys kept it in america but you just went completely all over the place and kind of shows that yeah ghosts are everywhere it's not just happening in new york because you kind of get the impression the ghostbusters like this is the first time this shit has ever happened and not sure if it's happening anywhere else and you've got the kind of i don't know global sense in there whereas a lot of times it feels quite closed off like in ghostbusters too they're just like yeah it's a thing i guess ghosts are real it's like they don't really address it where you guys have gone Shit's going down in England as well. Don't forget about Felbrick Hall. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's one of those things, isn't it? Often films set in New York or films set in London, it's like there is no world outside. Yeah. You talk to some people who live there and they're virtually like that. So, well, and, uh, and yeah, if you ask somebody about yeah. America, like, oh, where do you think of when you think of America? Oh, you think of New York, you mm. think of L.A., and there's that bit in the middle, I guess, that's like I don't know, it's all desert or <laughs> the whatever. The rest like, of America. The rest of America, yeah, exactly. You've got the coast and you got the rest of America. And that's exactly how people think of the UK. You've got, oh, you've got London. Then a long pause and Scotland. And then, <laughs> and then Scotland. People often don't know that Wales exists. No offence, Alec. <laughs> Just <laughs> Alec a silent space. shrug of agreement. And yeah, I like the fact that you didn't go New York to London. You went middle of fucking nowhere in east anglia <laughs> keeping it local and yeah going off and doing something completely different and having that hot fuzz kind of vibe but doing something a little bit different with it and getting it more supernatural i enjoyed enjoyed both but i do have to pick a winner it's a tough one and for a little behind the scenes i had to like rewrite my notes <laughs> to come up with it's kind of way pros and cons for both sides and uh yeah it's a tough choice i am gonna have to go for I'm going to go for the Tough Harbour Chicks. Thank you. I think you guys did well. I think you guys, using Extreme Ghostbusters, I think it's a, is a inspired idea. It's a, it's a good way of kind of... And the fact that when you brought up, Matt, that this is what Ghostbusters is to real Ghostbusters, this is that to Extreme Ghostbusters. I think that's an interesting way of continuing the franchise and that would hopefully 
continue it in a more positive light and maybe we would have gotten a Ghostbusters 3 in the future in some form and not had the reboot or whatever would happen I feel like that would set off the franchise in a very positive light and maybe given Extreme Ghostbusters an even longer run than it had and yeah set it off in, in a good light so I like where you guys have kind of left the, the series to go on forwards and I like you using the existing material but adapting it and twisting it and and yeah, bringing other kinds of diversity, like you said. There's already a diverse cast, but you changed it in, in interesting ways, and I really appreciate that. Congratulations, gentlemen. Two Thank very you. good pitches, I think. Yeah, I, as always, I think, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. solid Two work. both better than Ghostbusters 2 <laughs> and oh, Ghostbusters oh, yeah, Tim, 2016. Oh, yeah, you agree with that statement? Oh, there's the real... <laughs> we'll have to make them and then show them to him, so it's... Well, the, yes, that is the episode yeah. where my opinion doesn't really matter. It's who can convince Tim. <laughs> I, I, we had to convince Tim to write one. So, because yeah. <laughs> so, um, Tim and I, we, we sort of divide up, you know, who would take the lead on each episode, and then we edit each other's stuff and all that stuff. And uh, there was almost an immediate, well, you can fucking do this one. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I will. <laughs> um, but then, yeah, Tim and I have a lot of ideas, and we worked on a lot of things. Yeah, I think I think you can sort of sidestep Ghostbusters two. Just do something because we did we did something very very different. I think. Yeah. Arguably, one could assume Ghostbusters two still exists in your own head, Tim. Yeah. I mean, that's the th- that's the thing. <laughs> Only in your head, yep. Tim. Not everyone else's, Tim. No, 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 no. Your face. <laughs> uh, and you made a Dan Aykroyd possessed face. Yes. <laughs> Better than a Dan Aykroyd blowjob face. Are they not one and the same? They are one and the same. The ghosts come in through the penis. <laughs> <laughs> so, congratulations, gentlemen. Thank you. There is hope. There is hope. There is hope after all. Don't you worry. Well, I don't uh, know. We have to win every other episode, but there is, there, is, there is hope. That wraps us up for fixing Ghostbusters 2. Of course, check out the Tough Harbour Chicks Spotify playlist. Yep. Mm-hmm. And check that out for some... Spooky stuff. Spooky stuff, yeah. yeah. Some, some scary Polish music. Some, ri- some real <laughs> chillers and thrillers. And, and yet some upbeat... <laughs> Some upbeat flatulence. Yep. To look forward to that. It's how that's we not the title of the playlist. But I don't know what it is. Up, upbeat flatulence. Yep. So yeah, check all that out. That'll be in the show notes and in the description. And we will see you next week, where we will be fixing Shrek Two, a film that a lot of people like, and is considered more critically acclaimed than the first one. So this is going to be an interesting episode for us. <laughs> Probably arguing with the audience rather than each other. Yeah, uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I won't spoil anything for for next week's episode. But Let's have I, a little tease. Why I, not? I think ultimately, fuck you all. <laughs> That's been your fuck mentality recently, man. Who said yeah. everything? Fuck Bill Murray. Fuck Shrek. Fuck too. Edgar Wright. Fuck everyone. Fuck You're Edgar all wrong. Wright. Because ultimately, we'll get into more detail later. But everyone is wrong. Mm. Whatever, whatever happens, it will be quite the Shrektical. Fucking hell. Somebody once told me the world was gonna roll me in peace.